All right. Well, today we are going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay? A lot of confusion around the Holy Spirit, a lot of neglect of the Holy Spirit. People oftentimes err on one of two sides when we talk about the Spirit. Okay? They either don't ever talk about the Father and the Son, or they don't ever talk about the Spirit. So to quote one New Testament professor I had, stop making the Holy Spirit the neglected stepchild of the Trinity. Okay? And so we're going to focus and talk today about the Holy Spirit and who He is and what He does. But before we do that, we need to have a Trinity recap just for a few minutes so that we can understand the uh, Holy Spirit's role and place within the Trinity. All right? So when we talked about the Trinity, here's three things we said that the Bible affirms. Okay? The Trinity is not just some doctrine that we just tried to make up or that we tried to make Christianity confusing or that Constantine invented or something like that. What we're doing with the doctrine of the Trinity is we're simply trying to hold three facts together that the Bible clearly teaches. The first is that there is only one God. God says that a bunch. There is no God besides me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He will say things like, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Paul will say there are no other gods, that an idol has no real existence, etc. So the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that there is only how many gods? One. Welcome to Christian monotheism, okay? But in addition to that, the Bible also affirms that somehow God consists of three distinct persons at the same time. So though there's only one God and the Bible is so clear on that, people are worshiping Jesus and Jesus is forgiving people and people are calling the Spirit God and they're realizing that God's Spirit is dwelling inside of them and there's all these other things going on. And so what we realize is that though there's only one God, somehow there is a plurality to this unity, that God is only one God, one being, one essence, but that God consists of three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the third point here is that each person is fully and truly God. Jesus is not a third of God. He's not just like God's arm or something like that. The Spirit is not just a third of God. The Spirit is not 33.3 repeating percent of God. He's God. Whatever it means for, the, for God to be God is what it means for Jesus to be God. And uh, whatever it means to be God, the Spirit is God. Okay? And so the Bible clearly affirms these three things. We talked about these in a class. We talked about these in another class. We talked about heresies of how you can mess all this up in another class. We used three classes to talk about one topic. Okay? That's not really an illustration of the Trinity, but I just wanted to say that. Okay? Now, several times during this class, Jeff and I have tried to draw this illustration, but here it is correctly, okay? This is a picture of the Trinity. By that I mean, not literally, it's not like you get to heaven and God is a big triangle, but what I mean is it describes the Trinity, that somehow the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God, but the Son is not the Father and the Father is not the Spirit and the Son is not the Spirit, that there is this unity and this plurality within the doctrine of the Trinity. Everybody with me? Everybody good so far? Okay. Another thing you need to know about the Trinity is when God acts, He acts with all three of His persons. Somehow, all the members of the Trinity are involved in what God does. You see this, for example, in creation. You see that the Father is involved in creation, and He's speaking and creating through His Word, which we're told is Christ, and the Spirit is bringing order to His creation, hovering over the waters. Or you see the three members of the Trinity working together in salvation. The Father elects us. He sends the Son. The Son lives righteously on our behalf, dies on a cross uh, for our sin. And then the Spirit is the one that applies that doctrine of redemption to our hearts. The Spirit is the one that regenerates us. And so all the members of the Trinity are always involved together any time God acts. This is why St. Augustine will say things like, The Father sends the Son, but also the Son sends Himself. 
He says that nobody can take his life from him. He lays it down willingly. He wants to do the same thing that the Father does. Now, certain acts do culminate in different members of the Trinity. It is the Son who dies on the cross, not the Father, things like this, okay? But all the members of the Trinity are somehow involved in whatever God does. Everybody with me so far? Everybody fully understand the Trinity? No more questions? Everybody good on that? Okay, kidding, you can't. God is different than us to an infinite degree, so we can know Him truly. We cannot know Him fully. We can uh, apprehend but not fully comprehend God, okay? Well, today, we're going to talk about the third member of the Trinity. Who is He and what does He do, okay? I think a lot of us understand the role of the Father and how He relates to creation. I think a lot of us understand the role of the Son and how He relates to creation. A lot of us, though, don't understand the role of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, here is your fancy $20 theology term for the day. Okay, ready? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. Pneumatology, okay? That's what this area falls under that we're talking about today, what's called pneumatology. The Greek word pneuma means spirit or wind, or breath, or inner life. It's the same word in Greek, pneuma. That's where you get the word like pneumonia, all right? If you've ever wondered why a word sometimes starts with a P, but you don't say the the letter P, sometimes it's because it's coming from another language, okay? So there's a, a comedian that tells a joke about this, about how he gets his flight confirmation numbers, and he goes, I hate the people that give me those flight confirmation numbers. I want to give them some confirmation numbers. He says, I want to give you this. Ready? Write this down. O O zero zero O zero. 1-I-1-1-I-I small l, right? Because you write them all the same, okay? So pneumatology starts with a P because it comes from the Greek word pneuma, which means wind, breath, spirit, or inner life. Jesus makes a play on words in John 3 with this when he says that the spirit is like the wind. He blows wherever he wants. It's the same word in Greek, pneuma and pneuma, okay? It's where we get the word pneumonia. It's where we get the word pneumatic uh, and these kind of things. But we're talking about the Holy Spirit when we talk about pneumatology. Let me give you a definition of who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who has the task of manifesting the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Let me read that again. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who has the task of manifesting the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church, okay? Now, I've included some historic confessions about the uh, Holy Spirit specifically here, so I'll give you just two of them. The first is called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. It sounds like an ice cream flavor, right, where you've got like the strawberry and the vanilla and the chocolate or whatever. What's that called? Neapolitan or something? Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed in 381. Here's what this creed says. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who precedes from the, or proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Okay, they're trying to affirm several things in this. They're trying to affirm that He's God. That's why it calls Him Lord and giver of life. It's trying, they're trying to say that He is distinct and different from the Father, that He eternally proceeds from the Father. The Son has always existed. He is eternally begotten. The Spirit has always existed. He eternally proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. They're trying to talk about the Spirit's role in speaking through the prophets. The 39 Articles in 1517, this comes out of, uh, really, the 39 Articles are, are really a, a big historic statement in Anglicanism. Okay, in Anglicanism, it says this, The Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, is of one substance, majesty and glory, with the Father and the Son, very and eternal God. So that's historically what the church has held about the Holy Spirit. So, 
we're going to go over a few things about the Holy Spirit. Then at the end, we're going to go over some crazy questions like, what does it mean to be baptized with the Spirit? Uh, what is blasphemy against the Spirit? Uh, does the Spirit speak to us today? If so, how? Et cetera. Okay? So, hang on to your, to, to your seat belt. Is that a phrase? Is that a phrase? Okay. Number one, the Spirit is God. Okay? The first thing I want you to know about the Holy Spirit is He is truly and fully God. Let me give you some passages. Acts 5, 3 through 4. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira where they, uh, they sell this field and they go to lay the money at the apostles' feet. And the problem is not how some pastors turn that passage into. The, some pastors turn that passage into how you must tithe to the church or else God will kill you. That's not what it's about. So they, they come and they bring this money from this field that they've sold and they lie to the apostles. Okay? They lie to the apostles. They say, is this all of the money? And they could have said... Uh, no, this isn't all the money. We wanted to get a new suite uh, BMW, so we got one, but here's the rest of the money, and that would have been fine. But they say, yeah, this is all the money. And so God kills them because they are lying to the Holy Spirit as God is trying to grow his church, and this could be a potential big issue. And so Acts 5, 3 through 4, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So who is he lying to? The Holy Spirit. Now hang on to that. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to whom? To God. So notice that lying to the Holy Spirit is equivalent to lying to God. Okay? Psalm 139.7. The Spirit here is also said to have attributes that only God has. Where shall I go from your Spirit, or where shall I, where shall I flee from your presence? The Holy Spirit has this attribute of omnipresence. No other being has that. That is something that is unique to God, that He is outside space and time. He can be everywhere with His whole being at the same time. And here specifically, that is applied to the Spirit. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important that the Holy Spirit is added onto that list because it shows that whatever the Father and whatever the Son are, that's, that the Holy Spirit is that same God. Would you say something like this? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Jerry Holbrook. Or do you see that that last thing doesn't quite fit? Now, let me be clear. I love Jerry, okay? I love Jerry. By me saying that Jerry's not God, I'm not in any way defaming Jerry, okay? But you would not say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Archangel Michael, or something like this, right? The Holy Spirit there is seen as one of the members of the Trinity, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is Himself truly and fully God. 2 Corinthians 3.17, look what this says about the Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see this uh, calling the Spirit the Lord, okay? And He brings peace. He brings freedom like God does, okay? 1 Corinthians 2.10-12, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. If the Spirit is not truly and fully God, He could not search the depths of God, because God is infinite. God is eternal, okay? even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Okay? So the first thing I want you to see is that the Bible does clearly teach that the spirit is God. He is equated with God. He has attributes that only God has. He searches the depths of God. Uh, to lie to the spirit is to lie to God. Okay? So in the same way that the Father is truly God and the Son is truly God, the Spirit is truly God as well. Now, next thing I want you to know about the Spirit. He is a person, not a force or an it. Okay? He's not like a ball of energy or something like this. Okay? He is a person, 
not just like a, not, not a force or an it. You'll a lot of times hear the people call the Holy Spirit it. You don't do that with the Son. You don't do that with the Father. Don't do that with the Spirit. He's a person and is also personal, okay? He can relate to us. Let me give you some passages and tell me if this sounds like the Spirit is a person or if it sounds like the Spirit is a force or something like that. Ready? John 14, 25 through 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, He's given a name, He helps. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So He is both a person of the Trinity and He is personal that you can relate to Him. He teaches, okay? Another passage that talks about the Spirit being a person. Ephesians 4, 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Apparently, you can grieve Him. Apparently, you can do acts that He disapproves of. And this text will say, don't grieve Him. You're given the Spirit. He loves you. Uh, do not walk in unrepentant sin. Okay? Acts 13.2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so the Spirit can speak. Again, not an it or a force, but rather a person. Said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets. Romans 8, 26-27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Zach, I'm concerned that I don't know how to pray well, and I'm not praying rightly. Well, here's good news. You're never praying rightly. You don't know how to pray rightly. You don't know what's best for you. But the Spirit does, and He intercedes for you. As you're praying, the Spirit is saying, uh, here's really what this person needs to be praying for and is praying for. They don't know that, but this is really what they need. Okay? That's what the Spirit's doing. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Okay? What does God the Holy Spirit do? So, just as a recap, true or false, the Holy Spirit is truly and equally God. True. The Holy Spirit, though, is distinct from the Father and the Son. He's a distinct member of the Trinity. True. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God. He has the attributes of God. True. Uh, true or false, the Holy Spirit is like a big ball of electricity, and He's just kind of floating around, and He's impersonal, and He has no personhood. False. Okay? All right? So He is a person. Now, let's spend a big chunk of our time talking about what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? Okay? What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? Again, when God acts, all the members of the Trinity are involved in those acts, but certain acts do culminate in a particular person, like Jesus being the one that dies on the cross, not the Father or the Spirit or something like that. So let's look at some things specifically the Spirit does. Let me give you a quote by Martin Luther, the uh, German reformer okay, in the uh, 1500s, not to be confused with the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., who's actually named after this guy. But let me give you this quote from Martin Luther. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me by His gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. In the same way, He calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and preserves it in union with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, He daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers, and He will raise me up and all the dead at the last day, and He will grant eternal life to me and to all who believe in Christ. It's pretty good. Pretty good little quote by Luther. What does the Spirit do? Pretty much everything in your Christian life. Growing you, empowering you, regenerating you, transforming your heart, these kind of things. So let's go over some things the Spirit does. Number one, He saves and regenerates. 
He saves and regenerates. Again, all the members of the Trinity are involved in salvation. In one sense, you can say the Father saves you because He forgives you. He elects you. And in another sense, you can say Jesus saves me because He dies on a cross. He lives the life I should have lived. He's my King. But in another sense, you can say the Spirit saves me because He applies the work of Christ to my life. He's the one that wakes up my heart. Why is it that when you heard the gospel, your heart screamed out, I want that, and your heart had never done that before? There's something where the Spirit has woken you up. It's weird when you become a Christian. It's like the rest of your life has been a dream, and all of a sudden you wake up and you see things clearly for the first time, and you're like, what happened to me? And what happened to you is what the Bible would call new birth, being born again. The Spirit saves and regenerates. Let me give you some passages. Ezekiel 36, 20, uh, 20, I'm sorry, <clears throat> these are, let me give you the appropriate numbers. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. That when we become Christians, we're given a new heart. God takes out our heart of stone. He gives us a heart of flesh. And now the spirit lives inside of us. And he convicts us and he grows us and he helps us be obedient to God's commands. We're already loved and already forgiven and already justified by faith in Christ alone. Amen. And then we spend the rest of our life growing into what we've already been declared to be. Okay? You cannot get those things backwards. You cannot think that God actually thinks of you of however you're doing down here on earth because you're always falling short. You're always sinning. You're always breaking God's commands and so am I. You have to realize that God sees you 100% perfect because you're in Christ, and God's view of you is the most real thing in the world. And then through the Spirit, He starts shaping you to be what you've already been declared to be, which is perfect, which is righteous, which is spotless, which is clean. Joel 2, 28 through 33, and it shall come, I'm sorry, and <clears throat> I keep interrupting myself because I apparently have got, I just caught dyslexia over the weekend, and I'm misreading this. I apologize. Joel 2, 28 through 33. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the Old Testament, you have this kind of uh, unique infilling of the prophets, whereby they're filled with God's Spirit to prophesy. And what God is saying here is that there is a day coming where the Spirit will dwell in all of us, where the Spirit will dwell in all people who are Christians. This will not be a unique thing for a few. He will not just reside in somebody, then go away like King Saul, but rather it will be for all people. That in a sense, we all become prophets because the Spirit dwells inside of us. Titus 3, 5 through 6, He saved us, okay? Again, we've said this before. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus wasn't lost. He found you. You were lost. God is the one who does saving. Here, the saving is applied to the Spirit. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the way, God saves us not based upon what we do, but rather by His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of who? Whom? The Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay? So the Spirit saves and regenerates. In addition to that, He empowers. He empowers us for ministry. He empowers us physically. He empowers us spiritually to overcome sin and these kind of things. Let me give you some passages that talk about the Spirit empowering. Genesis 1-2. This is at the beginning when, God is, uh, when the Spirit is giving life. Let's talk about Him giving life first, and then we'll talk about some other ways He empowers. He gives life. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
Job 34, 14 through 15, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. The spirit continually keeps us alive. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Meaning, if the spirit that raised Christ lives in you, That same resurrection power, that spirit, will raise you from the dead bodily as well. Number two, under He empowers, He gives us power for service. Let me show you some examples. Let's go Old Testament and the New Testament. Exodus 31, 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by my name Bazalel. How do you say that, Jeff? Okay. Bazalel. I'm going to say it that way. The son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. So here in the Old Testament, specifically when God's talking about building his temple and these kind of things, he says, I'm going to give my spirit to this person to empower them for a work of ministry. In this case, it's a physical skill to be used to create God's temple, but you still see that it is empowered by the Spirit. Let's look in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Let me just recap that for you. Whatever gifting or talent or gift you have as a Christian has been given to you by the Spirit and is to be used to edify the body of Christ, okay? This list here, by the way, of these different gifts, that's not an exhaustive list. I think what we have a tendency to do is we look in 1 Corinthians and we say, you know, Paul mentions eight gifts. Which of these gifts do I have? Something like that. Any gift that you've been given that can be used for the ministry of the church is a spiritual gift. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul's just giving some examples, okay? Paul's just giving some examples. Another thing the Spirit does He sanctifies us. Who knows what sanctify means, to sanctify? Anybody? Set apart. Make holy. Okay? Purify. These kind of things. Purify us. Cleanse us from guilt. Sin. uh, Wash away our stains. These kind of things. That's the idea of sanctification. Let me give you some passages. I'm going to read one I just read to you again. Titus 3, 5 through 6. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing, there's that word washing, and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you. By the way, what he said right before then is he just listed a bunch of deplorable sins. He just listed a bunch of sexually immoral sins and these kind of things, and he says, and some were such of you, but, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit washes us. He sanctifies us. He grows us. He sets us apart as holy. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You cannot just will yourself to not sin. You have to put sin to death by giving your life over to the Spirit. The more you realize who you are in Christ, the more you realize that you're pure, the more you realize that God himself indwells you, the more you're empowered to put sin to death, okay? So you don't get over sin by just trying harder. You grow in your sanctification by remembering your justification. You grow in holiness by remembering that you are holy in Christ, that the Spirit dwells inside of you, that you are possessed by God, okay? 
Romans 15, 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay? So, let me say this this, uh, really strongly. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. If you worship and focus and spend all your time thinking on and looking at money, your life will be controlled by that. You will start to look like your God, money, okay? If you spend all your time thinking about looking at whatever illicit sexual uh, activity or whatever, your sexuality will become broken. And what the Bible is going to say is the more you look at Christ, the more you grow in holiness, the more you grow in godliness, the more that you're sanctified. You become like what you focus on. You become like what you worship. You become like what you gaze upon. Ephesians 2.22, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay? For God by the Spirit. Everybody, need a, need a little stretch break? We're reading a bunch of Scriptures. I'm just trying to overwhelm you with Scripture. Everybody good? Do we need to do some jumping jacks? Maybe some squats? No? Red Rover, get half the room over here to link hands and the other half link hands, and then we can pick somebody to run through the arms. I'd like to pick who gets to run through the arms. I would pick one person that I know would absolutely get clotheslined, and I'd pick another person who I know would just plow through everybody. Okay? If we need that, let me know. Just raise your hand, and we'll play Red Rover instead of doing theology. I'm kidding. Okay. The Spirit. What else does He do? Here, here's why I'm doing this, by the way. I'm, I know I'm reading a lot of Scripture. The reason I'm doing this, again, is because we have a tendency to neglect who the Holy Spirit is. Okay? We don't want to do that. He is equally God with the Father and with the Son, and so we have a tendency not to think about Him, and I just want us to, to be more aware of what He's doing. He's growing us in our lives all the time. He's doing amazing things in the world. He's regenerating people. And so I just want us to be thankful for what the Spirit's doing in our lives. The Spirit's the one who preserves us, okay? The Spirit saved us, and He will keep you saved. The Spirit reveals. He reveals. Number one, He reveals things to prophets and apostles. 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, okay? Number two, He gives evidence of God's presence. Okay? Where the Spirit is is where God is. 1 Corinthians 2, 4-5. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is uh, fighting against these people that are kind of uh, poo-pooing his ministry. They're kind of saying, well, he's unimpressive. He's not wise like us. We're philosophers. We're Greeks. We know Plato. We know Aristotle. Who is this Paul figure? And Paul says, when I preach the gospel to you, the way that you know that it's from God is because the Spirit moves. People get saved. Their lives are transformed. God works mighty miracles. People are healed, whatever it is. That's how you know my message is from God, so that it would rest on the power of God and not on me being a great speaker, okay? Me being a great speaker. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There is something that when you get saved and you get the Holy Spirit, where God moves from just being this far-off, mean policeman in the sky to being Father, to where you have an intimate, personal, loving relationship with God. It's the Holy Spirit that testifies with our hearts that says, you're a child of God. Royal blood runs in your veins. You're adopted by God. You're loved by God. You've gone from being an enemy to being a son or daughter, uh, adopted son or daughter of the Most High, okay? Number three. He guides and directs God's people. Romans 8, 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
Galatians 5, 18 through 23. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul here is not saying if you've ever done these things, you're condemned. He's talking about if you don't repent and trust in Christ and you continue in these things, you're condemned. But what he's doing is he's this. He, what he's doing is this. He's saying, here's what life looks like outside of the Spirit. It's marked by these things. Division, sexual immorality, idolatry, etc. But here's what life looks like when you have the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, these kind of things, okay? These kind of things. A good tree bears good fruit, okay? A bad tree doesn't bear fruit or it bears bad fruit, okay? In salvation, what God does is he doesn't take a bad tree and say, go find a bunch of other fruit on the ground and hang on to it and hope that I'll declare you to be a good tree. That's not what he does. Instead, what he does is through faith in Christ, by the Spirit, he regenerates you and makes you a good tree, and now you start naturally producing holiness uh, apples or whatever tree you are, right? You start producing goodness and love and self-control and joy. Your nature has been changed, and so your actions change. Nature always changes first, and then it changes your actions, okay? He guides and directs God's people. Being God, He provides love, joy, peace, etc. Let me read you a bunch of passages. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, he has, uh, who has been given to us. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Notice that it is not what goes into the body that makes a person unclean here. All right, Christianity is not about not eating certain foods or things or not drinking certain things. It's about the Spirit. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Number five, he gives us assurance of salvation. The Spirit gives us assurance of salvation. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's something that when you become a Christian, internally, something has changed. You have this love for God that you didn't have previously. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, listen to this. This is very encouraging. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that's the message of Jesus, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The same God who saved you is the same God who will keep you saved. Okay? What happens in salvation is God gives you the Holy Spirit as a down payment. And God never puts a down payment on a house that he doesn't intend to buy. Okay? He gives you this down payment as a promise, saying, I will get you to glory. I will get you to salvation. The question is not, can you lose your salvation? That's the wrong question. It's, can God lose your salvation? And he has a very good track record of saving those he wants to save, like 100%, okay? All right. He teaches and illumines. The Spirit teaches and illumines. 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he but is himself to be judged by no one. 1 Corinthians 2.13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. John 14.26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, this is specifically to the apostles, by the way, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. How do we know when the apostles write the New Testament that they're getting the words right? 
How do we know that the Bible is God's Word? How do we know that they just don't forget certain details that we need? Because the Spirit has promised to guide them in that, to bring to their remembrance all that Christ has said to them. He unifies us, okay? For, I don't know why there's an extra one here. I put one and two in front of these two references, but uh, I might have not. I might have corrected it on your sheet. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For the common good. Okay. Everybody good on some of the things. This is just a, a microcosm of some of the things that the spirit does. Everybody with me, or do I just need to read a hundred more passages? Because I will. Okay, keep reading. I'm kidding. Uh, okay, let's go on to the next thing. Let's talk about the difference between the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Okay, a lot of people get really confused on this. There are some people that act like there is no difference between what's going on with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, they kind of act as though uh, Pentecost is not a unique thing. They kind of ask, act as though you have like the Old Testament... And then the New Testament is really the Old Testament part two. And they act like there's nothing new with the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. I would say that that's not the right way to think about the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Conversely, though, I would say that the other extreme is not correct. What some people kind of act like is that the Spirit didn't do anything until the New Testament. They just kind of act as though the Spirit had no role to play, that the Spirit wasn't empowering people, that people in some sense were not regenerate or something like that in the Old Testament. And that's not right either. So I want you to avoid two extremes in thinking about the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you think that there's nothing that's new with the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, you've missed out on the fact that Pentecost itself says that something new is happening. If you, though, conversely act as though the Spirit isn't doing anything in the Old Testament, you've misunderstood that as well, okay? The Spirit is doing things in the Old Testament. He's changing people's hearts. He's empowering prophets. He's with kings so that they govern wisely and these kind of things. He's doing all kinds of things. There's a special sense in which Israel in the Old Testament, as God's covenant people, are blessed by the Spirit. But there's also a sense that there is something new that the Spirit is doing in the New Testament. I've given you a little chart here from an early church father named Novation, and here's what he says in regards to the Spirit's work in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think it's helpful. He says, with regards to the prophets, meaning in the Old Testament, he was not always in them. You see this, that God will come upon a prophet and empower them to speak, and then he will remove his presence. Or you see this with a king, right? So King Saul, God's spirit comes and empowers King Saul. When King Saul is disobedient, God removes his spirit from him, okay? So you see that there are times where the spirit will go and empower somebody for a time and then leave. That's something going on in the Old Testament. Another thing in the Old Testament is he was distributed in a limited way. It does not seem to be the case that all the people in the Old Testament, as God's covenant people, had the Holy Spirit constantly and were walking in his power. It seems as though he's given to certain unique individuals. He's given to kings, he's given to priests, he's given to prophets, he's given to certain judges, he's doing these kind of things. And he is given sparingly. He's giving sparingly. Now, what happens in the New Testament? This is something that's unique with the coming of Christ. Remember, Christ brings a new wine that doesn't fit into old wineskins. With regard to the apostles, he says this, he remained with them always. When God gives you his spirit, he never takes away the spirit, okay? He never takes the Spirit away. God does not put His kids back up for adoption. God does not forgive all your sins and then re-impute your sins back to you. Okay? You are secure. When you have the Spirit, He remains with you always. He's poured out on all Christians. Okay? Whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, doesn't matter your status. If you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Not everyone in Israel had the Spirit. Everyone who is a Christian has the Spirit. 
and he's given freely. God lavishly pours out the Spirit on Pentecost. So what's new is not the Spirit. He was doing things in the Old Testament. It's the same Holy Spirit. What's new and what the prophets keep saying in Ezekiel and Joel and these kind of things is a day is coming that will be unique. And here's what's unique about that day. In a sense, everyone will be a prophet. In a sense, everyone will be a priest. That the Spirit will dwell not just in select individuals, but everyone who knows Christ. Everyone who knows Christ. Okay? Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about other interesting things to know about the Holy Spirit. You ready? Okay, here we go. Number one, what is baptism in or of the Holy Spirit? Okay? That is just another phrase for you getting the Spirit. That is not a subsequent work post-conversion. That is what happens when you get the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay? So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit and have received a baptism of the Spirit. There is another group of theology out there in certain charismatic and Pentecostal and Assemblies of God churches and these kind of things that would teach that being baptized with the Spirit is an event after conversion, okay? And I'm telling you, it is conversion. It is conversion. The question is not so much, will I have more of the Spirit? It's, will the Spirit have more of me? Will I submit my life more to walking in His righteousness, Okay? Now, do I think that the Spirit could empower you in an especially strong way post-conversion? Sure. But that's not the same as baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So baptism of the Holy Spirit equals conversion. If you have the Spirit, you've been baptized in the Spirit by, the, by the evidence by the fact that you have the Spirit. That's not a different act. Let me give you a quick history of Pentecostalism <clears throat> in two minutes. Okay? John and Charles Wesley were the founders of the Methodist Church. Okay, great guys. Methodist Church now is a little bit squishy, a little bit soft, but it started out really strong with Charles and Char- John and Charles Wesley. Their, their followers were some guys uh, that started what was called the holiness movement. Okay, started what was called the holiness movement. So this came out of Methodism, and it was this uh, movement called the holiness movement. And what the followers of John and Charles Wesley taught was this, that post-conversion, after your salvation, there would, be, there would come a time when there would be a second baptism of the Spirit or a second giving of the Spirit, or a second blessing of the Spirit. Okay, so that's new. You don't have that much in church history. You have, I get the Spirit, when I get saved, that's baptism of the Spirit, that's done. But what these holiness preachers would teach is that you, there would be a time after your conversion where you would really get the Spirit, and it would be evidenced by living a perfect life. They thought there was a time after conversion where you would really get a, a, a big second helping of the Spirit, and you would never sin again. Okay? Now, there's all these funny instances of holiness preachers who ended up committing these major sins afterwards, right? So there's a funny one of a guy walking down a street in Chicago, and his hat blows off, and he says a curse word, and these kind of things, okay? Well, what happened is there was a guy named Charles Fox Parham over in the UK, and uh, he took this idea of a second baptism in the Spirit, a second blessing of the Spirit, but he said that no longer would it be marked by walking in per- a perfect life, by walking in holiness, Now, the necessary evidence of a second baptism or a second gifting of the Spirit would be evidenced by speaking in tongues, okay? And you got the birth of the charismatic movement. First person to speak in tongues that we have in world history, uh, other than some of the cults and stuff throughout church history, is by a lady named Agnes Osman in Topeka, Kansas, on January 1st, 1901. That's the first record that we have of someone speaking in tongues, okay? Now, I'm not getting into tongues or any of that kind of stuff today. I'm not trying to say tongues are bad or good or any of that today. All I'm trying to say is there's this idea in certain circles of Christianity that there's varsity and JV Christians, right? If you have the Spirit and you got saved, that's great. You might even go to heaven, but you're just kind of a JV Christian. What you really need is you really need this just amazing experience, and then you're really filled with the Spirit. 
And I want to press against that. The Bible's going to say that there's one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism. The, the whole point is that the Spirit is unifying us, not creating two levels of Christians where you've got like the Superman Christians and then the Clark Kent Christians, okay? If you have the Spirit, you have the Spirit, okay? He's a person, okay? If you have Him, you have all of Him. Can He empower you in a special way? Sure, but that's not because you have this second baptism of the Spirit that other people don't have. It's because you're just a Christian, and God is gracious, and so the Spirit empowers us for works of ministry. Another thing to know about the Spirit. Did I miss B there on your notes? Does it say AC? Okay, that's supposed to be B. Uh, let me just be clear. I'm not the Spirit, and uh, I am very fallible and imperfect, and uh, had the Spirit wrote this, it would have a B there. B slash C. Uh, I'm just going to go with what's on the notes here. Just know that I'm not trying to hide a secret point about the Spirit from you, Okay. C, the Holy Spirit does not bring chaos or ever go against God's Word, okay? The Spirit is about order. The Spirit is about intelligible things. The Spirit is about uh, understanding the Bible. Uh, the Spirit does not bring chaos, and He never goes against God's Word. You'll hear a lot of people say things like, well, the Holy Spirit told me to do this. And I'm like, that's weird because the Holy Spirit in His Word said not to do that, right? So the Holy Spirit doesn't go against the Spirit. Additionally, the Holy Spirit doesn't bring chaos, Okay? Whatever you believe about spiritual gifts, what you can't hold is that everybody just going crazy and flopping in the aisles and everybody speaking in tongues when there's no interpreter and all these kind of things uh, is what God wants because He says in His Word that if you're going to do it, you don't do it that way. You don't do it that way. Okay? Uh, D slash 3 slash C slash III, if you're keeping up in Roman numerals, is having the Holy Spirit is what makes someone a Christian. When I ask, is someone a Christian, I'm never asking, did they pray a prayer when they were six? I'm never asking, have they done church rituals like baptism or communion? Whatever. What I'm asking is, are they regenerate? Do they really have the Spirit? That's what makes someone a Christian. I've said this a bunch here, but I want to keep saying it because I think it's really important. Salvation is something God does to you. It's not just something you decide one day. It's something God does to you. Now, your decision's great. That's good. That's a lot of times the, the time God is working in your life when you cry out to Christ. But salvation is something that God does to you. Okay? Again, Christ found you. You were lost. You didn't find Christ. Christ wasn't lost, and you weren't looking for Him. Uh, next, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? This is a great question. Jesus says that every sin will be forgiven man except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Huh? It's juicy. Let me just say this before we start. <clears throat> if you are someone who loves Christ or wants to love Christ, you have not committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is stressed out a lot of Christians. I mean, Martin Luther wrestled with this. He's like, what about all the bad things I said about God when I was lost? Or what about all these things? Listen, if you want to know and love Christ, you have not committed this sin. Okay? Someone who says, I really do love Christ and I hate my sins and I even hate the false things that I've said about God before I was a Christian, that's a mark of the Spirit. That's a mark of regeneration. That's a mark that you're a Christian. Who hasn't improperly said something about God when they're lost. Anybody that's saved out of another religion would have fallen into that category. It's not that no Muslim can be saved because they haven't believed in the Holy Spirit or something like this. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Here's what's going on in context that I think will help it make sense. When Jesus says that, He is healing people and casting out demons, okay? Jesus healing people and casting out demons is A, a clear, obvious work of God, or B, a work of the devil. Who says A? Yeah, hey, right? So Jesus is casting out demons and healing people, and it's a clear work of God. And in the ministry of Jesus, the Pharisees come up and they say, the only reason you're able to do this is because you're walking by the power of the devil. 
And so what Jesus says by saying, hey, hey, every sin will be forgiven a man except blasphemy against the Spirit. Here's what Jesus is saying, Pharisees. I'm clearly doing a work of God in casting out demons and healing people. You're about to step over a line. This is a clear work of God in my ministry, and here you come trying to attribute that to the devil hard-heartedly, unrepentantly, continually, instead of following Christ. Instead, what you're doing is you're attributing the good work of Christ and the good work of the Spirit to the devil. You're about to step over a line. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Blasphemy is to speak falsely or slanderously against. Okay, So in a sense, blasphemy can only be committed with the mouth or the pen. But uh, again, I, I think it's important to realize it can't be just that you've ever said anything false about God. One of the things that Paul talks about being saved from is blasphemies is blasphemies. I think what Jesus is talking about is what's going on specifically in that moment of attributing the good work of the Spirit clearly to the devil, not confusingly, but clearly to the devil, hard-heartedly, unrepentantly. And Jesus says, do you not see how far you've fallen? Do you not see how hard your heart is? Do you not see what you're saying? You're taking the king of the universe and you're saying that he's empowered by the devil. That's what you're saying, okay? If you have committed, if, if you have, uh, uh, yeah, if you want to follow Christ, you've not committed that. You just haven't. You love and trust Jesus, okay? So don't beat yourself up on this thinking that, oh man, I accidentally said this one time when I was uh, lost and now I'm doomed, okay? There's always hope for you. Anybody that comes to Christ, he'll by no means cast out. Where I've, one, there, there's two thoughts on this. One, some people think you can't commit this sin today because you don't clearly see the ministry of Jesus casting out demons where you could clearly hard-heartedly attribute that to Satan. Others think you can commit it today, but the kind of people that would do that, I'll give you an example of, there's something online on YouTube called The Blasphemy Project. And what people do is they get online and they just slander and curse and say all kinds of perverse things about the Spirit. And at the end of the video, they say, and I'm not afraid. Okay? It's very kind of bone-chilling. That's the kind of thing where there's unrepentance, there's clear knowledge of doing it, there's no desire to be saved. I think there's, this text would say something about uh, those people's hearts. Okay? F slash one, two, three, four, five. Okay? How can I know God's will? How can I know God's will? I'm going to give you uh, some simple steps to know God's will. And I think that you should follow them in this order, okay? So let's say you're, ask, you're, you're trying to figure out God's will for your life. Should you take a job? You ever heard somebody say that the Bible's like a handbook for life? It's kind of a, kind of a good handbook, but kind of an unhelpful handbook because there's a lot of questions I have that it doesn't answer, Okay? So what happens is, uh, let's say I'm thinking about taking a new job, or let's say I'm thinking about who I should date. Not me, as Zach. I like Parkway and I like Katie, but I'm just someone who they should date, or they're thinking about uh, whether they should move to another state or something like this. What are the steps we should take to know God's will? Okay, let me say a few things, and then I'll give you Zach Lee's five steps to knowing God's will. Okay, here are the first things I want to say to you. Number one, God's will for you is never to do something directly against the Bible. Okay, if you're wondering if you should take a new job and that job is the manager of a strip club, the answer is no. I can say that with confidence to you. God does not want you taking that job, okay? So if the Bible addresses it, if you're thinking, man, I wonder if I should cheat on my spouse, the answer is no, okay? If you're wondering, uh, maybe I should go shoot my neighbor because he never brings his trash cans up, the answer is no, okay? So first thing I want you to know is if the Bible addresses it, there's your clear answer. There's your clear answer, okay? The second thing I want you to know is this that if you're making a decision that is not sin, you have the freedom to do what you want. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God has not told you in Scripture which job to take. He has not told you in Scripture where you should live. He's not told you those things. So you have the freedom to make that decision. 
This is why Augustine's phrase, love God and do what you want, is a super helpful phrase. Well, I want to go kill a guy. No, no, no. Love God and do what you want. All right? As long as you're doing the first thing, you're not walking in sin, you have freedom on the second thing. Okay? So you need to realize God has given you the choice to pick what you want to do in most areas of life that are morally neutral. Okay? That are morally neutral. If you want to take this job, go take that job. If you want to move here, do that. Now, wrestle through other things. Will going to take this job take me to a place where maybe there are no churches? That'd be a problem. Or will, uh, you know, taking this new job take me away from my family for too long or something like that? There are other principles you need to, to keep in mind. But what you need to do in making a biblical decision is simply this. You ask yourself which one gets you the most of Jesus, which one will help you love God more, and you just start walking in that direction. And as long as you walk with open hands, God won't have to break your fingers. Pick a direction, start walking with open hands, and He will open and close doors as He needs to. Where you get in trouble is when you wrap your hands around something and say, this is what I'm doing. And God has to be like, get your hands off that, right? Okay? So, first ask yourself, what does the Bible say? If the Bible doesn't address it, or it doesn't address it by implication, you have the freedom to choose what you want as long as it's not sin. So walk towards a goal, and then let God open and close doors. That's a lot, that gives you a lot of freedom. What a lot of people do when they're trying to make a decision is they keep crying out, God, show me the answer, as if he's going to ride up in the clouds, you know, work at Home Depot or something like that. He's not going to do that. Start walking in a direction and let him open and close doors. I talked to a guy one time that said he'd been waiting to see if God had called him to ministry for 50 years. And I said, well, even if he had, it's too late now. So tough, all right? So... Start walking in a direction and let God open and close doors. You only get hurt. Here's the thing. If it's true that, uh, that God works out all things to the good of those that love Him, then you're not going to ruin your life by making, moral, or by making uh, uh, morally neutral decisions. If, even if you choose the wrong job or you choose the wrong place to live, you're not going to ruin your life if that's not a sinful decision. The way you ruin your life is through making sinful decisions. Okay? It's through sinful decisions. Now, let me give you the steps that you should make in uh, wrestling with knowing God's will. Okay? I put them here in order for you. Number one, Scripture. What does the Bible say? Okay? That's the first thing you should go to. By the way, the Bible addresses a lot more subjects than you think it would, a lot of times by implication. Okay? A lot of times by implication. Number two, logic. By logic, I don't mean just your natural human reasoning. I mean things like this. If you say, I think God is calling me to be a doctor, and you don't have a medical degree, that might be a sign that He's not calling you to be a doctor, at least not until you get your medical degree. Okay? So what I mean by logic is, you know, it's not sin for me to all of a sudden today to decide to move to Alaska. But that might not be what's most wise. That might not be what's best for my family and my wife and these kind of things. Okay? No offense to Alaska. I've heard it's beautiful. Number three, next thing you do. So if I'm trying to make a decision that's morally neutral, that the Bible doesn't address, I first ask myself, does the Bible address it in some way? The second thing is I say, what, may, what seems to be a wise decision? All right? uh, is this going to hurt my family? Is this not going to be good? The third thing I do this is I ask other Christians. The Bible says that there is wisdom with many counselors. We've seen over and over the book of Proverbs will say, do not trust yourself. Do not do what seems right to you. There's a way that seems right to a man that's end is the way of death, okay? So it's, it's, good to help, uh, it's good to get help on this thing by asking other Christians. Number four, the situation. Most of the ways God has directed my life is through setting up the situation in a certain way where I could only go one direction, okay? I'd lose a job, and there'd be one job provided for me, and I think, okay, that's the job I'm supposed to take. Now, lastly, look what I've put here, lastly, 
feeling a leading or a prompting from the Spirit, okay? I do think that the Spirit prompts us. I do think that the Spirit leads us and guides us. The only thing that's difficult is you don't know if that's the Spirit sometimes. You don't know if it's you. You don't know if it's the devil. You don't know if… you don't don't know, and so it's hard to tell. So typically, if I follow these other steps, what is wise biblically? What does the Bible say? What do other Christians think about it? What is my situation? It's easier to, in a sense, hear the Spirit's voice. It's easier to know what that prompting is, okay, to know what that prompting is. So I don't want to downplay that. I just want to make sure there are some people that say, I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. I'm going to, you know, move to Barbados because the Spirit told me last week I should. Maybe, but let's go through all these other steps and then ask yourself if the, if the Spirit is giving you this command or maybe you just feel a leading to Barbados. What do you mean by told you? Okay. Uh, letter G, what does a Spirit-filled person look like? It looks like someone who walks in righteousness. It looks like someone who studies their Bible. It looks like someone who prays. That's what a Spirit-filled person looks like. To quote one uh, professor I had that was also a charismatic pastor, he said, I don't care how high you jump in worship as long as when your feet hit the ground, you walk like Jesus. Okay? It's that walking like Jesus part. That's the part that's hard for us. We like microwave spirituality. We like, I've had a big experience, now I'm good. Biblically, growing in holiness takes years, and it's awful, and it's painful, and it involves Bible study and prayer and community and confession of sin and and these kind of things, okay? H, or whatever letter it should be. You don't grow in holiness by trying harder. You grow by asking the Spirit to grow you. The Spirit is the active agent in growing you in holiness, okay? What you need to do is yield your life more and more and more to the Spirit. Again, the issue is not so much do you get more of the Spirit, it's will the Spirit have more of you. Now, lastly, a little juicy topic. By the way, I'm not getting into spiritual gifts today. Ha-ha! Okay? You're going to have to wait until we get into the doctrine of the church for us to talk about gifts. And we'll have multiple lessons on that because it's sticky and difficult and frustrating and great, okay? We'll talk about that later, so I'm not even getting into that today. We're just talking about the person of the Spirit. But I do want to say this. Does the Spirit speak to us today? If so, how? Does the Spirit speak to us today? If so, how? So I want to give you a few thoughts. I do think that the Spirit speaks to our hearts today. Yes and amen. But I want to clarify what that does and doesn't mean. Okay, this is really important. Most Christians will say, yes, somehow the Spirit speaks to our hearts. But let me be clear what I think this does and doesn't mean. Okay? This is just Zach Lee's views, by the way. Number one, in what ways did the Spirit speak to us today? Number one, He confirms the truth of Scripture to our hearts. So notice when the Spirit is doing that, He's simply reminding you of something that's already in Scripture. He confirms the truth of Scripture to our hearts. When I read Scripture, there's something inside of me that says, yes, that is good. Yes, that is true. There are times I'm reading the Bible, and for the first time, my eyes seem to be open to something, and all of a sudden it hits me, and the Spirit says, this is true. You need to believe this, okay? So he confirms the truth of Scripture to our hearts. Number two, he reminds us of what Scripture says. There are times where I feel like the Spirit has said to me, God loves you. But that's in the Bible. That's not new information. That's not new doctrine. The Bible says God loves me. And what the Spirit's doing in that moment is reminding me of something that the Bible says. Number three, I do think that he can prompt us in certain directions. Okay? I felt led to marry Katie. I felt spiritually led to come to Parkway. Okay? Uh, I felt led to stay away from somebody who has slandered me. I felt there, there are places where we feel led and prompted by the Spirit. You guys have probably felt that, where you feel maybe God's calling me to do this mission trip, or maybe God's calling me to go talk to my neighbor, or maybe God's prompting me. What I would say is that the Spirit does give promptings today. He gives guidance. He gives direction. And then lastly, 
the Spirit at times will give us insights into situations. Insights into situations. Uh, there are times where pastors have literally sat down with somebody, and all of a sudden they think, man, I think this person's been abused. And that person hasn't said anything about abuse. The Spirit just kind of told them that, and they say, have, have you, I'm sorry to ask this. I know this will sound super weird. Have you been abused? And the person breaks down crying because they have. Well, how do they know that? That the Spirit is giving them some insight into the situation. Uh, there was a time when I was on a mission trip, and uh, I was actually in Israel, which is a fun place to do a mission trip because you get to use the Old Testament, a lot of Jews there. And, uh, and a guy who's just some random stranger came up to me and said, God wants me to tell you something. And I'm like, oh, no, here comes a weirdo. This guy's going to be super weird. And he just came down and he said, I just feel like I'm supposed to tell you this. God loves you, and he's got his hand on you, and you don't have to worry. All biblical things. And at that moment, it was super encouraging because I was really struggling and I was having a rough time and was doubting my salvation, all these kind of things. And so for him to come up because he felt led by God to say something that the Bible already says to encourage me, it's great. It's great, okay? Now, here's what the Spirit does not do. I need to be really clear with these two. The Spirit does not give you new doctrine ever, and the Spirit does not give you new commands ever. The Spirit does not give you new doctrine ever, and He does not give you new commands ever. Let's say you invited somebody over to your house and for breakfast, and you said, uh, hey, thanks for coming to my house for breakfast. We're going to have uh, eggs and bacon. And they said, oh, well, I don't eat bacon. Okay? First of all, if you say that in my house, you just get shot. This is Texas. You eat bacon. Okay? But if they said, I don't eat bacon, and I say, okay, you don't, you don't have to be, can I ask why you don't eat bacon? And they say, God told me not to eat bacon. Would that not seem suspicious to you because the fact that God's Word has already allowed you to eat bacon because Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic Law? Wouldn't that be weird if they said, God told me I couldn't eat bacon? Now, maybe they've decided not to eat bacon because they have a heart disease in their family. That would be a good reason not to eat it, okay? But it's not because God is giving them some extra command. So maybe you'll decide, you know what, I'm not going to drink. My, I, there's alcoholism in my family. That's a big temptation to me. I don't want to drink. That's fine. That's a decision you're making based upon wisdom, but that's not God's commanding you you cannot drink. Or, uh, or whatever, whatever your issue is, okay? So I just want to be clear. What does the Spirit do today, and what does He not do today? He does not give us new doctrine or new commands, right? If God shows up in a dream and says, you must wear pink pants every time you go to church, you don't have to follow that. That is not God, okay? He's not giving us new commands today. What does the Spirit do today, though? He does give us promptings in certain directions, lead us in certain directions. He does sometimes give us insights into a situation, he does remind us of the truths of Scripture, and He does, when we read Scripture, confirm the truths of Scripture to our hearts. He helps move it from head to heart. You with me? Okay. Charismatic with a seatbelt. That's the way to be. All right. Let me pray for us, and then uh, I'm going to hang out up here to answer any questions uh, that aren't about gifts, because those will come later, so don't steal our thunder. And, uh, and then uh, remember, you pick up your kids at uh, 10.15. Other than that, you can linger, hang out, go to the bathroom, drink a bunch of coffee. We'll see you all in service. Let me pray. Spirit, we thank you that you're God, and we just ask for wisdom. Uh, and Father, we thank you that you've given us your Spirit, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And we thank you for sending Christ, that we might be able to be adopted, that he lived the life we should have lived, and that he uh, died the death that we deserve to die. And so I just ask that you would protect us and guide us. Uh, I pray for everybody in here. I pray that you might uh, help us be more aware uh, of the Spirit's presence. Uh, that we would love Him more, and that we would trust Him more. It's in Christ's name. Amen.